0: Hey, Three Crosses family, welcome to our podcast series that we are calling Going Deeper. AJ Venegas here. I'm working as the life group director here at Three Crosses, and this is going to be a space where we go deeper into the scriptures together so that we might grow deeper in our love and devotion to our Lord Jesus Christ and his church. We'd love for you to join us by listening in each week as Pastor Danny or any other teaching pastor here at Three Crosses sits down with us shares all of that valuable study material that never quite made it into the Sunday Sermon, but can definitely help us grow and take our study of the Bible to the next level. We're glad you're able to join us as we examine the scriptures together. So let's go deeper. We're sitting here with uh, Pastor Danny Strange. Pastor Danny, welcome. Thank you. To Go In Deeper podcast. Pleasure to
1: be here. Thanks for uh, putting this together.
0: Yeah, we've had this idea for a long time, and we finally got uh, the equipment together. We got the studio ready. And uh, Danny, tell us why we decided maybe we want to do a podcast on sort of the material that you're going through in the sermon material.
1: Yeah, first, the I love your use of the royal we, because just so our audience knows, AJ, who's the one interviewing me here, is like done so much great work to dive deep into not just the commentary study and the text and all these things behind this First Peter series, but also just to develop this whole idea of, um, hey, what if we could sit down and glean more insights from the text than we can even get in the Sunday morning context? And so, as I was thinking about that uh, that why question on the way over, I was thinking, you know, that word glean is probably the right word. I mean, when you think of like. Old Testament farming. There's this concept that you know you grow these crops, and then the harvesters come through, like you know, Book of Ruth, take everything out. Um, but then there's all this stuff that's left that hasn't been harvested, right? And so the gleaners come and they grab all the other bits of fruit or wheat or whatever it is that hasn't been harvested by the main harvest. And I feel like a lot of times that's how we feel when we're Uh, preparing sermons, whether it's, you know, me in the first few weeks of the series or you uh, coming up in a few weeks or other folks who are communicating in the series is like, there's so much great insight in the scriptures that gets left on the cutting room floor, for lack of a better term. And there's much more that can be gleaned if someone would come alongside after the sermon and pick up what's left behind and say, hey, there's some other insights that just, you know, I don't want to preach a two-hour sermon. And neither does anybody else in the audience, right? And so if we take another half an hour and add to what came out on Sunday morning, we could talk about some stuff that maybe either was intriguing in the text that we didn't get a chance to talk about, or, um, yeah, stuff that came up in study or commentaries or stuff that is good for us as believers to know that's in the text, but just for time constraints or the flow of the text itself, like, just didn't make it into the sermon, so... um, yeah, just to glean some additional insight and dive deeper into the word. It's so exciting to be able to spend um, several weeks and months going through a book of the Bible. And it's crazy to think there's like so much more we're not even going to get to in here. And so, but hey, this is the second level gleaning here. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Thanks for joining us, audience. So let's go deeper. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's how 1 Peter starts. And one of the things that commentaries say is that for. One of the 12 apostles being like the main leader twelve of the 12, it's kind of an impersonal letter. So he only uses reference to himself a couple times throughout the letter. So to help us set us up to read this book well, I'm wondering when we see that it's Peter writing, what are we supposed to, I guess, download into our brain about the apostle Peter and how might that context sort of help us along the way as we go through this letter?
1: Yeah, I, I was thinking about that last week because I loved the, uh, you know, Pastor Ryan uh, came and brought the scripture on the restoration of Peter in John 21 uh, to end our last series, kind of the week before this one. And so it's kind of fun that now we're moving into a book written by that same guy who walked with Jesus, who was doing ministry with Jesus, who fell hard, who was restored in his faith, and then like we see in Acts 2— stands up and preaches the gospel and kind of becomes like the senior pastor of the Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem before Paul goes out on his missionary journey. So I think for us, it is helpful to look back and say, hey, who is this man who wrote this letter? Um, and maybe how does it differ than, think of a Paul the apostle to the Gentiles, uh, missionary Paul and Peter's writing this letter to these churches that we'll see in verse one, right? Uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, in these Gentile regions, but he's a guy who comes from a Jewish background uh, and is writing to it. So I, yeah, I love knowing who's writing these letters. And yet, like you're saying, I do think there's a humility that comes out of these apostolic authors where they very rarely go deeply into their credentials, right? I think of Paul talking about, I knew a man who was transformed into the third heaven, that kind of thing, like can't even talk about himself in the first person. And then when he does, when Paul introduces himself in his letters, Normally, he's introducing himself based on his standing in Christ, based on the need, right? So whether it's Galatians, he proves his apostleship because he has to write a hard level letter or other books where he talks about the salvation that comes by grace because he's reinforcing the gospel message. Peter really just starts it simple, right? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then spends most of his time talking about the audience, And like you said, throughout the letter, he'll talk about, hey, I'm a fellow elder too in 1 Peter 5, some different autobiographical stuff, but really doesn't get deep into his life, um, which I think really speaks to his humility. But I do think it's helpful for us to know who's writing this and to whom is he writing it.
0: Yeah, I love the fact that we can grab a profile of Peter in the Gospels and sort of understand who he is so that we have a picture into his mind while he's writing this letter. But another thing we get insight, which you mentioned, was his audience. So he outlines in verse one, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, a couple of observations here that we might be able to make. Uh, like you said, we know that Peter was entrenched in this Jewish culture from the outset, and he uses these Jewish terms, elect, exiles, dispersion, all of those have something to do with the Jewish story, yet there are also some commentators that say this letter seems an awful lot like a Gentile letter. And so the second question I got for you is, it seems as if Peter is doing something strategic here by using these Jewish terms and then addressing an audience that may be Gentile, maybe kind of a mixture of both. I know there's a lot of questions around who this letter is meant for. So could you help unpack that a little bit more to help us wrap around the context?
1: Yeah, I think that you know, there's a, a theological term called the, I'll probably pronounce it wrong, propiscuity of scripture. You heard that term before? Mm-hmm. Did I make that up? Yeah, okay, you got it. Uh, which is really that scripture is clear, right? So like God, whatever God has written in the scriptures is clear for us as we intend to read it. And yet at the same time, that does not mean that every single thing that we wanna know is clearly in the scriptures. And so I think that's part of the tension for me that I has never been ha- hard in the sense of like faith altering, but part of for me doing Bible study is deciding okay, what has God made plainly clear for us on purpose, and what are some things that like for whatever reason God has not made uh, clear for us to see. And I think I think it's important as we walk through conversations like both of these questions, right? We don't know uh, why Peter was pretty anonymous when he wrote First Peter, right? We don't know why he was using Gentile terms or Jewish terms in a letter that might've been a Gentiles. We don't even know if the audience was Jewish folks, like we talked about on Sunday, or Gentile folks. Uh, We do know about Peter's background. We do know what he's trying to say in this letter. And so part of this tension is trying to figure out what do we know and what are questions that could be helpful to wrestle with. And I think this is one that these are helpful things to wrestle with, right? Because there's a chance that, Peter's using a lot of elect language because he's got a Jewish background. He does ministry in a Jewish context, and it just spills out, right? It's the Christianese, right, of Peter's life not intentionally doing it. But there's also some clues in the text that if he is writing to a Gentile audience, maybe he's trying to show them that all these things that have been historically Jewish, you have access to now as well, right? Once you were not a people, Peter says, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have receive mercy, right? So like, wow, they used to be Gentile and they still are, right? But now you've been grafted in, to use Paul language, grafted into this tree or this vine that is Israel. And so all these promises, all these theological terms from the Jewish community are now yours in Christ Jesus. Or, right, the flip side could also be true. These are Jewish folks, right? And other people have argued that. And so it's, he's using language they'd understand. And so when he says, you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, uh, what Peter's saying is, hey, you were, yeah, you were without hope, without God in this world. You had an empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers because it was this Jewish background without the Messiah. But now you've truly returned to Jesus by finding Christ from a Jewish context, right? And so, you know, we talked about that on Sunday, just the... We don't know who the audience was, but all of these different wrestling matches in our minds, to put on kind of our, to borrow a phrase that Pastor Buzzer used a lot, our redemptive imaginations, right, Or redeemed imagination, um, helps us to really wrap our minds around what would it feel like to be someone in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia— who's receiving this letter. And yeah, I think it is helpful to kind of walk through that. If I was a Jewish believer, how would I feel? If I was a Gentile believer, how would I feel? And sometimes you see this intersection of regardless, I would feel like this. And other times you're like, well, hey, I don't know. I'm not going to like bank on this thing. But um, yeah, I think think these are helpful things to wrestle with. I probably didn't even answer your question. I just told you something else. Tell me if there's something I need to answer. I think this is
0: helpful because I think I was struck by one of the commentaries that at a minimum, it was 150,000 square miles, at a maximum around 300,000, which was, wow. at minimum, was like the size of California. So it's like, how can you pinpoint exactly who he's talking to mm-hmm. in the size of our state? Mm-hmm. You know, I thought that was pretty interesting. And then there's a whole bunch of theories. You know, Did they line up the cities because of the route? Did they Were they colonized from Emperor Claudius at the time? And uh, you can go through all the Acts, uh, the book of Acts, Acts 16 in particular, and They kind of list these cities, but it's like this is such a wide area of people. Does that help our thinking a little bit more? Or I
1: think so. I think, and I think that what you just brought out, which is I love that, is a is a tool that we can use too, right? As we try to build these tensions, like we don't know why he listed those cities in that order. He doesn't tell us, right? But. It's a helpful tool if you're studying your scriptures at home and you're reading 1 Peter 1 1 and you read these names of these cities, turn to the end of your Bible, grab a map and grab a pen and just trace <laughs> the cities in order and be like, whoa, it makes a circle, right? Then you might, it'll it kind of light something up in your mind to be like, I should look and see if there's anything to this, right? Mm. Sometimes we read these commentaries and, uh, and some of us love read commentaries. Some of us don't love to read commentaries. Some of us love to watch podcasts and we could talk to people who have read the commentaries, right? But mm. we read these commentaries and we think, man, these these men and women who wrote these commentaries are brilliant. I don't know how they get these insights. They do this, right and they think, I wonder if it's true. And then they look read they read up on it and they find out, wow, that's actually a theme or it's not or you know, and so um, I think stuff like that is just really helpful for us to wrap our mind around like why these cities, where were they? How far apart were they, right? And I, I think what we brought out on Sunday is part of this is you see this loneliness exile theme that emerges throughout the book that I think, man, he's writing to people in all these different cities scattered abroad, right? The NIV 1984 says, uh, doesn't say elect exiles. It says strangers in the world. And so just the emotion that you see as you kind of look through the text to the context, you see that he's not merely just saying, you're exiles, check the box, but- There's something about the distance you are from Jerusalem, the distance you are from one another, the spread out nature of where where you are, and the suffering you're experiencing in this Greco-Roman world far from Israel all brings part of this emotion that he's writing to a suffering church that's lonely and alone in a foreign world trying to figure out how to follow Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, and I love this wrestling with who the audience is because Peter then goes on in. The next part of the verse here according to the foreknowledge of god the father in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to jesus christ and for sprinkling with his blood and so he he gives sort of substance to the identity of this audience saying that hey there was something about the foreknowledge of god the sanctification of the spirit and obedience to jesus christ and sprinkling with his blood and so a third question i've got comes from a perspective of a skeptic which we'll try to do a little bit in this podcast series, uh, thinking through the lens of maybe I'm a little bit skeptical of the Bible. And so I think the trigger word here is foreknowledge. He uses foreknowledge and immediately that sparks conversations about, well, what did God know from the beginning, predestination, all those different things. Uh, He uses sanctification of the spirit, which I think the spirit is just a mystery in himself. And so a lot of people don't quite grasp the spirit. And then obedience to Christ, like that's something that, okay, I can do, like I can obey him. And then you get sprinkling with his blood, which is like, all right, I'm out of here. If we're talking about sprinkling with blood. Um, so I'm wondering if you could help us just walk through that threefold sentence right there that qualifies the audience. Um, again, foreknowledge according to the God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and obedience to Jesus Christ. Um, and then also, you probably, as a listener, hearing Trinity themes in this. What is Peter setting up for us here by using those three um, interesting phrases and also grounding it in the Trinity?
1: Yeah, I think that what I love about this is I had a a professor named Howard Hendricks at Seminary who taught us basic Bible study methods. And one of his famous quotes was, he said, "I believe ninety percent of questions we have about the Bible can be answered by asking the question." what is stated in the verse immediately preceding or the verse immediately following the verse I'm reading right now. And I think I was thinking of that when you said that, because we get locked into this, whoa, there's a lot of great, here we are. We finished the preliminaries. Now we're in this quandary of theology, but verse two follows verse one. And in verse one, Peter sets the tone of these lonely and alone scattered saints throughout the world. And the question that emerges as we read through the book is, How do I find my place in a foreign place? Where am I in all of this? And one of the themes that is really hard to pick up on in 1 Peter until you see it's there, then you can't stop seeing it, is that Peter talks about the place that we find ourselves in within the salvation history of God's people all the time. Like if you read Peter, you almost see this structure where he's moving from the beginning, right, the Old Testament, and moving into the eschaton, right, when Christ comes back. So we see in First Peter these these concepts of the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, right? And so there's some we can talk about that that week. Is that Old Testament prophets or New Testament prophets, but there's these prophets who spoke forward about where we'd be right now. We see Jesus who died to initiate uh, this forgiveness, who raised from the dead to bring us into this new life. We see Old Testament, right? And then we start seeing, like, we're in these last times. Here's where we are in salvation history. So part of what what Peter is doing is beginning to ground us in when we're in a world where we don't know which side is up, we don't feel like we belong. We're aliens and strangers here. We're foreigners in a foreign place. We feel like we're not at home. Peter says, you are not primarily at home within a geography, but you are primarily at home within the salvation history of God's people. That's your place. So your place is right now in these last times, but it's not an accident, right? Because you were chosen. And so that's kind of this foreknowledge, all that. But the main verb of those three clauses there is chosen, right? You were chosen colon, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father, right? So it's like, you're not here by accident. God knew before salvation history even began that you would be in this moment right now. You were chosen according to the sanctifying work of the spirit, which means you did not do this on your own. The spirit himself illuminated you to the truths of the gospel and sanctified you, made you holy through his work. So it's not about you and you were chosen for obedience, right? And that's when we were like, okay, good. Something I can do obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, he says. So it's like, well, hold on. You actually can't do obedience either. You're going to need to be purified along the way and made holy by Jesus. And so he really kind of wraps it up of like, you're living in these last times on purpose because God knew you'd be here. The spirit made you clean. Jesus has set you on a mission, but he's gonna keep cleaning you up as you go. So it's almost like, here's your place. Don't think about your place in terms of the geography in which you live. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Think about your place of like, I am living in the last epoch of the salvation history of God's people awaiting the glorious return of Jesus. And I'm here because God put me here. The spirit has brought me here. And Jesus has called me to live here, but he's going to help me along the way. And so it kind of brings the like, find your place in the Trinity. Find your place in God's history. Find your place in him. Don't find your place in the city that you read in verse one.
0: I love the fact that being chosen in God is what kicks us off, especially in the content that is to come, because I know we're going to get into some stuff about suffering and how to handle that. And so that's like a key foundation that Peter lays out. And so, Peter, just like a lot of the other New Testament letters, ends this introductory section with the traditional greeting, grace and peace. And so, how might this concept of being chosen, this grace that we have as Christians, and this peace that we have as Christians, kick us off as we try to engage with uh, 1 Peter?
1: We've talked a little bit about what to get and not get out of the scriptures. And I think one warning as we approach the scriptures is to be careful not to get stuff that isn't there. Right. And so that's kind of the alarm that goes off for me when you ask that question is (laughs) there's a chance, use those words really intentionally. Right. There's also a chance that like grace and peace was kind of like sincerely in the first century. (laughs) Right. Where, when we. Yours truly. Yeah. When you look at all the New Testament epistles, they have a very similar opening line. Right. And so Mm -hmm. in In that era, when you'd write a letter to somebody, it wasn't like sincerely AJ at the end. It would be at the beginning, you introduce who you are, who you're writing to, kind of the purpose of your letter, that kind of thing. And so grace and peace be yours in abundance might just be like a Christian cliche from Mm -hmm. the first century. But I was also thinking at the end of the book, right? First Peter 5, 12, Mm -hmm. he kind of brings this closing line of the whole book. He says, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. And so we see when it comes to the actual purpose of the letter, it's almost like Peter said, okay, I just gave you the grace of God, right? And, and grace of God is, it's this gift of his spirit that he's given. Like this is God's charity. That, yeah, I'm just using synonyms for grace, I guess. But if this is it, this is the good news in a sense. This is the gospel. This is the grace of God. I just laid it out for five chapters. Now your commission is stand firm. And I love that Peter isn't saying, no, go run after it or don't fall away, right? Like a Hebrews, he says, I want you to stand firm, right? So that goes back again to verse one and the strangers in this world theme that comes out throughout the book is God has a gift for you, even in this foreign and lonely place. He has a gift of his presence. He's got a gift of his power. He's got a gift of his mission. He's got a gift of his forgiveness. Your job is just to stand firm. Right. Stand firm to the end. Don't fall away. Keep on keeping on in this lonely place. And so when I hear grace and peace be yours and abundance, I think it could be a cliche. But at the same time, that's where he lands, is the grace of God is the place where I want you to rest and stay and not drift away from as you try to exist in a sense in this Babylon um in the history of the world.
0: Yeah. And I love that the person writing this is the same one, like you said at the beginning of this episode, the same one that denied christ three times and was graciously forgiven and now we see examples of him in acts like standing firm and now he's telling us to do the same knowing that we've been washed with the blood of christ and forgiven and we can go on and obey and so i love that concept of understanding who's writing it to
1: peter's the one who I, i wonder if the reason he says obedience to christ and sprinkling by his blood is because a he's learned you can't always be obedient to Jesus. And the night before he betrayed Jesus was the night that he goes to Jesus and says, right, I don't want to wash your feet, all that, you know, that kind of concept. And Jesus says, like, unless I wash your feet, you have no part in me. He's like, then just wash all of me. And Jesus says, you're already clean because of the word that I've given to you remain in me, right? Like you just need your feet washed. You don't need your whole body washed. And so like this learning from Jesus himself is kind of starting to trickle into his writings where it's, he knows as a believer, we are clean by the sanctifying work of the spirit. We're called to obedience, but sometimes we need our feet washed, right? And so we see some autobiographical learnings in the discipleship of Peter coming out perhaps in even the opening two verses of this book.
0: Yeah, there's so much in first peter that we could go on and i love the format of this podcast that we can like talk about this stuff and so my final question to you is there anything that's left on what the, we call this cutting room floor concept uh something that didn't make the sermon that you just are so eager to let our audience hear
1: yes and i'm like really excited about this part of the podcast whenever we do it because for me when we started talking about this podcast that was the image that came to mind was cutting room floor thought of Uh, I've never created a film back in the day where they used real film, right? But back in Hollywood, they shoot all of this film into the canisters. Then they bring it into the editing room, cut it apart, put it into the final thing. And there was all these scenes that they couldn't use in the movie. And on the floor of the cutting room, they called it, were all of this great stuff, this content that couldn't make it into the film. And I feel like that's a tension every time we preach is Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a famous Welsh preacher in the 1970s and 80s, he said, you know what? A sermon is not a commentary. It's not just you walk through these verses and tell them what they mean. It's something else. Like it's it's a movement I've got among his people. It's a symphony, he said. And so our job is not merely to tell you everything we see in the text, even if we could. And so we have to make these decisions of what doesn't get into the sermon. And this week, there's something I found in my study that I really thought would be powerful for the sermon because it was so powerful to me personally. And what it is, is a letter I found that was written after First Peter was written, but and after the scriptures were completed, but early in the church, in the early church father's period, this is late second century, there was a letter that was written and circulated throughout the church uh, called the Epistle of Mathetes to Diognetus. And Mathetes is the Greek word for disciple. So it could have just been like a circular letter that went around. It was an apology, like a uh, a defense of the Christian faith and talking about who Christians are and what they're all about and it sounded so much like the world of First Peter and the world we live in today. Um, and I'll paraphrase a lot of stuff, but this is Mathetaste of Diognetus chapter five. He was talking about who Christians are in this foreign world. And he said things like, Christians don't come from any one country. He said, Christians don't settle into any one particular city. They don't speak a common language. They don't have any single way of life. They're this mystery type of people. He says they don't have a some set of rules that someone wrote as to how Christians are supposed to live or conduct themselves in any kind of city. they just kind of, they're different all over the world. They're this unique species. He says, but... As they settle into every type of city, into the variety ways of living they've chosen for themselves, as they adapt into the customs of whatever world they find themselves in, they, and this is a quote, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. And then in chapter 5 of this epistle, he kind of talks through three different things, the citizenship of Christians, the ethics of Christians, and the sacrificial love of Christians. And he talks in the citizenship, he says, they come from all these different countries, and they live in these new countries, but they live, no matter where they live or where they come from, they always live like visitors there, like the world is not their home. He says, they have full rights and privileges as citizens in their countries, but they endure hardship as if they were foreigners. He said, and this is a quote every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth is a land of their strangers. They live as strangers and aliens in this world, even when they're naturally born citizens of a place. And then he says, they're very strange in the way they live. He says, they're kind of like us. They marry, this is a quote, as does everybody else. He says, they beget children, but they, Christians, do not destroy their offspring. So he kind of talks about the, the, way of life in the Roman world where folks had unwanted pregnancies and children and would discard them in garbage dumps. And we know from church history, Christians were the ones who would go and gather those unwanted children. He says, even for themselves, they have kids and they always keep them. They don't destroy their offspring. They're different. He said, they have a common table, but not a common bed. This is right. They live like family. They hang out, they have dinner, they have meals, but they have a different sexual ethic. They don't sleep together like people in the world do. They're just different. He says, they are in the flesh. They're humans like the rest of us. But they don't live after the flesh. For some reason, they don't live after their own passions. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. Talks about their relation to government. These are all themes that come out in 1 Peter. And then I'll I'll just read this and we'll close. He says, they love all men and they're persecuted by all. They're unknown and condemned. They're put to death and restored to life. They're poor But make many rich. They're in lack of all things, and yet they abound in all. They're dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor, they are glorified. They're evil spoken of, and yet justified. They're reviled, but they bless. They are insulted, and they repaid the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoiced, as if quickened into life. They're assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. I read this and just thought, and like, living in a strange world as suffering people is hard, but people can see, and it's beautiful, and I think for us, as we walk through this book, that's my dream, is that we would see in the words of First Peter, the ability not just to survive in a world that Christianity is strange and foreign to people, but like Jesus said, all men will know we are his disciples by our love for each other and by living out the Sermon on the Mount, like, like this epistle says here. So that was something for me, it was just like, hit me like a ton of bricks when I read. Uh, and obviously you heard how long it was. Couldn't put in the sermon. So I'm glad we had a context to bring that out if that's helpful to anybody out there.
0: Yeah, there we go. I think it's really helpful uh, as we live as foreigners, as strangers in this particular strange world that we're citizens of called the East Bay Area, seeking to transform the East Bay with the gospel through love and through following Jesus and doing what He commands. So we hope this has been helpful for you to dive deeper into your own study of First Peter, We hope that you join us as we sit down with Pastor Danny or any other teaching pastor that preaches on Sunday and uh, just hear what their studies have brought out in their own lives and uh, hear some more cutting room floor material. And so, Pastor Danny, thank you for taking us deeper and uh, thanks for
1: being here. Yeah, thanks for having me.